In this episode, 5G small cells on your well sites, and then stacks of apps, and finally, connectivity that you can write home about. gas has always challenged technology. Now it's time for tech to challenge back. Come hear how the best minds in the industry are making those solutions a reality on the Oil and Gas Technology Podcast with your host, Mark LaCour. Hey folks, before we get to our guests, real quick, if you want to support the show in any of our eight oil and gas podcasts, leave a review. It helps your peers find the good shows when they see those four and five star reviews. And if you don't think we're worth a four and five star review, give us a one star and then tell us why you gave us one star so we can fix it. And a big shout out to Nutanix, the sponsor of this show. If you need help modernizing your data center and running applications at any scale on prem or in the cloud, these are the folks you want to talk to. Today, I'm excited. This goes back to my old telecom days. I'm sitting here with Mark Slaughter and Stan Huey. And y'all work for a little company called Infrastructure Networks. We do indeed. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah. And so, Mark, you and I started talking about this before we turn on the microphone. We both go way back, right, in telecom. And so we're going to get to what y'all do now, but let's kind of start from the beginning. Because you talked about something I haven't thought of in years, is the fact that when you used to want to reach back out to your boss or to your, your mom or dad, you had to go find a payphone. You had a dime in your pocket all the time. That, that world has just about disappeared, hasn't it? Yeah, you could go back really to the 80s, and that's really the way you'd have to do it. If a company man was on a drilling location, he would have to drive to the nearest town and then use a payphone. And even a payphone is obsolete today. Yeah. And that, that evolved to something called analog phone cable. You'd go to a Bell South or Southwestern Bell head end and roll cable across lease roads, across fields, all the way to location. It might be a couple of miles, right? And that cable was subject to being cut, but the company man then had a phone, and he could call and order supplies and do his morning report, those sorts of things. That really started bringing you know information to bear. And then it evolved to satellite and then finally to our business today, which is LTE, terrestrial wireless. Yeah. It, so I come from those days, the audience doesn't know that. I literally got my start at the phone company 25 years ago. And a four-wire analog connection was sizzling fast back then, right? It was. And then eventually, if you wanted more connectivity, if you had the money, because it's expensive, you'd buy a T1, which is 1.5 megs, which the audience is like laughing. That's not fast at all. But back then, that was like insanely fast, right? And then you were able to carry voiceover in it as well. And you're right. Out in the rural areas, you had to get a string cable. We literally had crews that would go out and run that cable. And if it wasn't temporary, they'd run it in conduit. It for that exact reason. So it was a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of cost to get one phone to work in one remote site somewhere. Yeah. And what was really funny, the company men, as we moved to satellite, they wanted to keep that analog phone connection with that temporary cable rollout, even though they were starting to get data connections. They didn't understand or trust voice over IP. Uh, do you remember two-way radio, the old 450 radios? I mean, that was something else they wouldn't get rid of. They would build towers and put their own radio systems up so they could have radio communications. And that's something else they didn't want to get away from. Well, it's kind of the oil and gas business to a degree. It's viewed in many cases as a technology laggard because it's such a complex system that you're afraid to make changes. If it works, that's good enough. And so there's always a little bit of resistance to you know, move to that bleeding edge. Yeah. So let's go fast forward to now. You said something to me that lit my eyes up, which is 5G, which everybody's is a bunch of buzz going on. So if the audience doesn't know what 5G is, what is 5G? Well, I'm going to, I can answer that at a layman's level. I'm going to turn to our co-founder and chief technology officer, Stan Huey, to give us a bit of a background on that. Yeah. So Infrastructure Network started building its 4G network in 2011. In this last year, we doubled the size of that network and we conducted a large 
pretty much a forklift upgrade with Nokia to make it a 5G ready network, which basically means we expanded the backhaul capability. We've got a fiber going to a lot of our cell sites right now. And our main goal is to be able to put 5G small cells on well pads and out on drilling sites and in major asset facilities that are in the oil and gas space. So we've been working on that the last year. And at this point, we are currently talking to several customers about running pilots where we would actually deploy a 5G small cell out at one of their sites and use that to probably with a fiber backhaul connection out there to the very edge of the network. And that would underlay our 4G network, which would be kind of an umbrella coverage over those areas. So we would have areas of concentrated 5G broadband services, ultra broadband services, and then a 4G umbrella over Right now, it's about 130,000 square miles, which is roughly the size of Japan. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, and and there's one other aspect of 5G as well, which is narrowband IoT. And so the idea there, and it's really base and wide, is you can put these low-cost, low-power radios near sensors and actuators and basically scale across all these devices, bringing that back via 5G. And again, that's taking us to a new level of automation and machine-to-machine communications. So that low-powered radio basically would grab the data from the sensors, right? And then it would broadcast it back to the 5G station, then would hit the backhaul and bring it back to wherever it needs to go? Actually, the narrowband IoT has the ability to broadcast directly back to the main cell sites, catch our backhaul, and go out. So 5G is a split in the technology. There's the ultra-broadband side, and there's the narrowband low-power side, which is to the sensors. Let's talk a lot about that, because I didn't even know that existed. Let's talk some more about that. So go ahead. Yeah. So what gets most of probably the press and where you see Verizon doing advertisements in football stadiums showing their ultra broadband, the Internet of Things, the 3GPP, which is the governing body that drives standards for LTE and 5G services, they saw a need for these low power sensor type radio communications. So I'd say over the last five or six years, there's been a lot of evolution and development in that. And so with the 5G rollout, we're going to see a wide area, low power technology that's going to roll out. Right now, the technologies that have been out there to date are what's called like a LoRaWAN. There's also several other standards that have come out in Europe, but a lot of them are proprietary. So the narrowband LTE or IoT is going to be part of the 5G standard. It's going to allow us to put out very low cost sensors that are battery operated. These are sensors that can wake up once or twice a day and basically broadcast and transmit information. And we believe the big challenge in that area is going to be how operators are going to go from managing thousands of communications devices to potentially hundreds of thousands or millions of devices. So our focus is really on how do you monitor the batteries for those? What is a priority access? If a site goes down, how do you risk assess it? So you know that this sensor is more important than the hundreds of thousands of other sensors that are out there. So that is, uh, that is an area that we've been, been putting a lot of focus on in addition to our ultra-broadband 5G services. Now, a human can't look at all that amount of data at one time, so you must be developing software systems to monitor all this, this sort of stuff. Well, there's sort of a digital technology stack, and you know, we really know our place as a communications provider at the foundation of that. But it moves up into devices, into cloud services that aggregate this data, advanced analytics that converts the data to information and insights, and finally visualization software, getting to what you're saying, to turn that into actual information on the part of end users. 
Yeah, this is incredible. But this is your core competency literally is the wireless connectivity part, right? You build the hardware, the towers, the microcells or whatever, install the equipment, get it powered up, probably got backup gen sets, and then you got to connect it to basically public. You think of it as the, the public internet, although it's different, but that's what your backhaul is and using fiber and probably microwave shots for that. So you literally have connectivity from the middle of nowhere outside of Midland, Texas, back to anywhere in the world. Yeah. If you use AT&T or Verizon, which are you know, public carrier alternatives, they're really great in West Texas along Interstate 20 and around Midland, Odessa, but you get deeper into the Permian. <laughs> where all the, yeah. It disappears. And so you know, we're custom built for the oil and gas business across four major shale plays in the lower 48. So it's the, it's the Permian, both in West Texas and Southeast New Mexico, the Eagleford in South Texas, the Scoop Stack in Oklahoma, and the Bakken in North Dakota. So again, it's a very big network. Yeah, I think another point is this is a completely private network. So actually, the network, the towers, the backhaul, none of that touches the internet until it gets to the customer. And the customer at that point can choose whether they want to pass that traffic to the internet. But our segment is completely private, which really differentiates us. That's a big point that we need to discuss. So a lot of people may not know this, but if you've ever been on your cell phone and you see you have full signal strength, a number of bars, but you have a bad connection, you're not able to get data, what you don't realize is you have great connectivity. The site's just full, right? It can't take any more users. And the switch, which controls all this, tries to hand you off to another site. And if you're in the city, it works because sites are close together. But when you're out in West Texas, there's not another site to hand you off to. So the fact that you're a private network means that Y'all see the traffic, you see when the sites start getting full, and then you can add more capacity if you need to. So your private network should most of the time be much faster than the, I don't want to say public, but they are public companies, public networks. No, that's a great point, actually. And we've even taken it a step farther. When the standard was developed, there was the ability to prioritize traffic across the network, across what we call the radio access network, which is really the critical bottleneck in a lot of wireless networks is that over-the-air interface. So our network operates completely on licensed 700 and AWS spectrum that we went out and got the licenses for. And we have the ability based upon when a data barrier is established. In other words, when that radio connects to our network, we can look at what kind of traffic that is. So if it's like SCADA and automation traffic, we give it priority. We give it a fast lane across the network to get back to the customer. And then what we can do is we can stack by priority, several types of traffic. So the operator may have their enterprise connectivity. They may have crew welfare people and employees that are working out there that want to be back in touch with friends and family. We can stack all those in priority to make sure that the very critical assets or life safety assets, they always get priority over the network and everything is completely segregated. And I'm guessing your clients can come to you and go, I want you to give that higher quality of service than that. And y'all can do it. Yes. Yeah, that's cool because some clients may have a different need for a different priorities. I'll tell you a funny story about that. I just bought a house at the end of December and I put a fully meshed Wi-Fi network in because I'm tired of having great bandwidth close to the router and horrible bandwidth in my backyard. What I didn't realize is my 14-year-old son got into the controls and he gave himself and all his devices quality of service. So he had <laughs> faster access. And it took me about two months to figure out what was going on. And when I figured out, I go, first thing, I'm a fuss at him. Second thing, maybe not because I was pretty smart. Like I should have outsmarted him and done it 
it to myself. But that's basically what you're talking about is your clients can determine which of their needs are highest priority and y'all can give them to them, which you can't do in a public network, right? The carrier decides what goes where and when. That's correct. And so it's, you know, it's the HOV lane versus the interstate highway or the county road or the single lane road. And so we can set those priorities working with the clients and it gives an overall better performance. And what about things like cybersecurity? Because it's your network and it doesn't touch the internet until your client wants to make that connection. Cybersecurity has become a huge thing in our industry. It used to be just the CSO and maybe the CIO even knew what that was. Now the business understands because when you shut down a pipeline because somebody hacked into it, you know, that's millions of dollars of lost revenue a day. But because yours doesn't touch and y'all control, you must be extremely secure. It is. It's completely private. And we've kept the network private just for that purpose. We, we consider it basically a critical infrastructure industrial type network. So to that extent, once that network's established, we view all the applications that are running. They're really applications, whether like what we talked about, this whole stack of technologies, whether it's two-way radio, voice services, those are all now applications on the network. So we give those prioritization. We keep it very secure. And then we back that with the customer through what we call service level agreements, which are contractual agreements that we have for delivery of availability and uptime. And so when we take traffic across the network, a lot of our customers set up their own private IP space. So they have their own private IP, no public IP addresses on the network. And that that really gives it an extra level of security that they're not going to get from any type of public switch telephone network. Yeah, that public IP thing, we got busted with that about two years ago. You don't realize how easy it is for somebody to find your IP address for things if it's public. And it's awfully replicated, right? So yeah, if you're an operator out there and you're looking at putting up networks, make sure you talk to your cybersecurity guy about the right way to put that stuff up. So the other thing I'm curious about is because this is a private network and y'all are a private company, you can basically build out where you want as opposed to the big carriers who build out where the demand is or they try to anticipate where the demands can be. Well, we're anticipating demand as well, but it's oil and gas related activity. That's why we've, you know, arrayed across these, you know, four basins. It fits from a topography standpoint, but it's also where a lot of the oil and gas drilling activity is in the lower 48. And I would guess that most of your business today is data connectivity, not voice, although I'm sure voice is part of it. It is. These are really it's a data network, but voice over IP is data as well. We do try to make available the you know the public carrier you know, switching, but that again can be backhauled across our networks. So we play a key role there. You know, absent our network, you know, many places the public carriers can't reach. Uh, oh, uh, I but, know. <laughs> but, but, we, but we, you know, through small cells, we can, you know, make make that available. Yeah. And so if an operator, and I keep saying operator, it's not just operator, it has to be pipeline companies as well. They need connectivity, they need SCADA circuits. But if a potential customer is operating one of these basins where there's little to no connectivity and they want it to engage with you, what would that initial conversation look like? Well, hopefully we're calling them <laughs> and getting the word out through podcasts like this, that we, we're the you know, lone provider of this you know, mission-critical LTE-based network to serve their needs in these four basins. And so it's really just having that conversation, doing data traffic analysis, and ultimately, you know, striking an arrangement with them to provide them service. And it's operators, it's drillers, it's service companies, midstream companies that you talked about as well, anything that's under coverage. What's also interesting is there are non-energy verticals as well. Anything under coverage is subject, you know, to being served by us. That could be agriculture, utilities, mining, right? So we're looking for anything that's under this 130,000 square miles of coverage that I we can serve. I didn't even think about that, but it's amazing. I guess it was last year I got a chance to tour Caterpillar facility, and I was dumbfounded in the technology that's going into agriculture now 
I mean, it's literally to the point where the software is determining ahead of time in what direction the tractor should form up the rows, right? And it's then using GPS to make sure that the angle of the rolls is ideal for the catching the water of whatever the anticipated rain of whatever that crop is. And I'm going, oh my God, but none of that could work without connectivity. None of it could. Well, that's exactly right. For everything from irrigation to what the elevation of your field and the orientation of it, crop planning, all of that you know, can now be done with sensors fed back and we can play a critical role at least where we have coverage. And municipalities are interesting as well. Uh, utility districts and other, you know, emergency response, first responders, all of which can access our network are interesting discussions for some of these smaller cities under coverage that otherwise wouldn't have access to this type of network. Yeah, I never even think about that. So for a small municipality out in New Mexico somewhere, it might be cheaper for them to actually buy connectivity from you than to try to do it themselves. Exactly. Right. And that's the point. You know, we, we sort of have put a market position in place between the public carriers and then oil and gas operators who build their own networks for themselves. We can basically scale a network across multiple customers, multiple oil and gas operators, but also non-energy customers as well. And that ultimately everybody benefits from that because of the scale advantages that that network affords. That's right. So if you build out a network, regardless who uses it, everybody benefits from it. And from your end, from a business point of view, the more users you have, the more capital you have to build more network. That's correct. We can follow you know, where the oil and gas industry moves. Yeah. So I kind of want to go a little bit deeper into the 5G part. There's a lot of, say, misconceptions about 5G. And I may be part of the reason that some of them are out there because I've been talking about this for a while. It's like it's fundamentally changed so many things, such as do you have to wire your building with Cat6 cable anymore, right? Does the processor in your car need to be physically connected with copper wire to the sensors in your car, right? So let's talk about some of the benefits of 5G. Can we also talk about some of the myths that are out there? Well, I guess the benefits would be the promise of the ultra broadband, very low latency connectivity, which is really the underlying of what you talked about, right? I think the challenges and where some of the myths come into play is that the spectral licenses, the millimeter wave bandwidth or frequencies that are needed to support that ultra broadband, they don't propagate very far. They don't go through walls very well. So they're higher frequencies. They're than very far. high frequencies. Yeah. So in order to for the data bearers to carry that much data, they have to be very high frequency just to get the frequency bandwidth available. So I think where the promise of 5G is running into the reality of the 5G deployments is, you know, Verizon started with some fixed sites 5G deployment, fixed site 5G deployments, and those had to be almost line of sight. They thought they were going to get maybe up to a mile, and, and in some cases they're getting 500, 3, 4, 500 meters because foliage comes in, the walls, you have to put external antennas. So I think the technology will evolve, but there's going to be some fundamental physics limitations, right? So... Where I think it does have a lot of promise, though, is as they move those 5G cells closer and closer to the end user, you start getting them on every light pole, you start getting them out into the urban infrastructure, cars will be able to communicate with them. And I think some of the sensor technology is right now, a lot of our self-driving cars are dependent upon having some type of artificial intelligence in that vehicle that replaces the driver. We're trying to duplicate the brain of the driver, right? And I think what 5G is going to enable is something to simplify that where two cars will have awareness of each other when they don't even see each other through that 5G. So they'll be able to, you know, if you're coming around a blind corner, 5G will know there's a car there and the two cars will be able to communicate in advance. And that's really going to be a game changer for a lot of like when you talk about smart car technology. For us, we think it's going to be, there is a lot of decisions that have to be made at the edge of the network that can't be made at the edge of the network right now because it requires a lot of computing power. 
So operators are constantly balancing what data do I take back and compute on to try and make decisions on what's happening at the edge. If you look at directional drilling, what the results of my frack were. So what we see the 5G will be able to do at the edge of the network is to balance how close that compute gets out to the very edge of the network. And and I think Mark has talked about, we're seeing maybe a terabyte a month coming off a drilling rig, but they may be generating terabytes a day, right? So we're only getting a small bit out. Yeah, there are studies that suggest, I think it was EY had a study out that really only 1% of the data actually generated at a well site is actually transmitted off the site. And of course, we can measure that. That's almost a terabyte of data a month per drilling rig out in West Texas today. And that's just a snapshot and the growth rate, you know, per year is quite high. Yeah, we've seen a whole bunch of stuff being done on the edge to edge computing for that exact reason. Between the cost of bandwidth and latency issues, they're letting the software figure out what's the exception, what's the important piece of data, what's that one piece out of 100 that I need, and sending just that back. But I think the goldmine somewhere down the future is all the rest of that data that's not being utilized yet, right? But once again, to your point, you can't get it back economically yet, but it's definitely coming. Well, you can today on our 4G network, but you know even that will become constrained, and that's where 5G can come in, where we can start delivering gigabit speeds at the pad. And we'll be able to, you know, transmit all that data back to decision makers. Really, it's data to information to insights. And, you know, we play a key role in making that happen. So, Stan, I want to ask you real quick if I understand this. So, literally, one of the constraints of 5G is the actual hardware, the actual cell site, the antennas, have to be physically closer together because the frequency is so high that it doesn't propagate as well as lower frequencies. Yes. Yeah, so that's additional cost. So, instead of putting up two cell sites in the area, you might have to put up 20. Or whatever the number is. You could, yeah. Yeah. The oil and gas analogy is infill drilling, right, to, you know, build out a prospect after you've proven it up. And, you know, for us, it's not going to mean across those four basins that we're going to have 5G, you know, perpetually across all those basins. It's really at a well pad level, a small cell that's activated and has, has a radius of transmission of about a mile. And so, you know, we can bring, you know, gigabit speeds to that well pad. But to say that it's going to be across our network is not correct, right? That would be, you know, way too much investment and not really justified, right? We really need to be where the drilling activity is. When I first started the conversation, I talked about where we have a strategy where we have like this umbrella of 4G coverage that provides multi-megabit speeds over a very large geographic area. Then we have facilities and assets where you may have fiber going to them. And 5G becomes the the last few feet distribution. Gotcha. And you put a 5G cell there. And then tying that all together is this narrow band, very low cost sensor technology. That's the the low power wide area network technology. And I think where that's going to be really important is there's been a lot of progress made over the last decade, I think, in asset tracking, geolocating. Mark's even got some experience in that. I think what you're going to see with the low power narrow band technology is you're going to go from asset tracking, your truck, your vehicle, your high dollar assets down to what I think of as material tracking. You're going to want to know where's my delivery of sand, where's my gallon of water, where's my tool, where's my part. And the cost to track those things will get so low that you'll know where they are all the time. And as that moves through a logistics train out in the field, you'll know where those parts are. And all of that together is where I think you start to get this concept that the, the operators have put out of like manufactured drilling, where they see these wide open spaces as kind of a factory floor. And the more visibility you get, and it takes a layered approach of multiple technologies, the more you can weave those together into really a very large production operation. You know what I love about that? That's You're talking about supply chain. And supply chain is an issue for the entire industry, upstream, midstream, downstream, and service. 
And when you look at other verticals, like look at big box retail, Walmart figured out supply chain a long time ago. They literally know where every box of Tide is in the world that's being delivered to their stores. And that drives a layer of efficiencies that's unheard of. We can do it. We're just not there yet. Right. But what y'all are doing or y'all are enabling that type of technology to work. Yeah. Well, that's exactly right. In a lower commodity price environment, the oil and gas companies still have to make their financial returns. And it takes this sort of factory floor approach and kind of an IIoT approach to really make that happen. Yeah. This is like really cool stuff. And the funny thing is your marketing person who's sitting right here who didn't want to get on the microphone actually found me because one of your people is a listener to one of our podcasts. And I didn't even know y'all existed. One of my favorite things about what we do is I get to meet Interesting people doing interesting stuff in the oil and gas industry literally almost every day. So if somebody's listening to you and they have communication constraints out there, when y'all engage them, can we kind of talk like what that would look like? Because I know we have listeners that are going, should I call or should I not? Should I call or should I not? And I'm guessing that one of the first things y'all do is y'all sit down and try to assess what their needs are. Well, that's exactly right. It's kind of traffic analysis. What are the use cases they're trying to solve out there and how can our network help enable that? In some cases, it's just basic connectivity. In other cases, we're going to bring other partners to bear, you know, the ability to solve, you know, higher level problems. An example is we work with a company called Asperity. And Asperity provides intelligent visual monitoring solutions for the oil and gas industry. It's a Shell Ventures company. In fact, I was CEO of it for a time last year before I you know, took this job. And what's interesting is they are bringing artificial intelligence. It's a video flavor called computer vision that allows you to put fixed cameras at a well site, monitor activities, but no humans involved until an alert is sent to an end user. And then they get to respond to it. So it's management by exception. Think of the pumper that wakes up every day and drives the milk run route across all these well sites. And most of the sites he gets to, he says, there's no problem. There's no reason I really needed to drive here, but I just drove two hours to take a look and everything was fine. Well, now with this camera system, that pumper only goes out by exception. And Shell Oil found that they could reduce truck trips like that by 50%. Think of all the boxes that checks, you know, wear and tear on, on trucks, better productivity for Your employees. Your lost time incidents, lost time, safety, safety, environment, everything. So in all of that, through this technology, their technology layered on top of our robust remote communications network really delivers value. So this is the first time this has ever happened. We've had them on the show already. How cool is that? That is neat. Yeah. yeah. And this was not planned. I didn't know y'all had that connection. That's just, it's really cool. But the reason they're on the show is because I think they're a game changer. Literally, their technology is allowing not only operators to operate safer, but things like theft at rig sites that nobody wants to talk about, right? That's a big deal in this industry. That shuts down all that sort of stuff. And once again, we talk about edge computing. That's what they're doing. They're basically taking all this data, crunching at the edge, and only sending the exceptions back. Well, it's a little bit different. Yeah, they're, they're video buffering at the edge, and they're doing some basic analytics on the computer vision, but then they're sending it up to AWS, a cloud service, to run the full you know, AI stack there, and, and alerts are sent from the cloud. But they're going to you know, continue to do edge computing and improve that. We have another partner called MockFu, which is kind of interesting. They're a CSL capital company here in, in Houston, and they have an edge device, a security appliance that, again, is agnostic around being able to aggregate various sensor data together. And we provide the backhaul in association with them. So, again, teamed with these partners, we can really solve more complex use cases for our customers. This is probably just the beginning. I mean, as our industry progresses, I've been in this industry 25 years, and I would say 
the adoption of new technology in the last five years is probably faster than the previous 20, especially new technology. And you mentioned a couple of, of capital groups, venture groups. That's another thing I think is cool. All the startups that are coming on the oil and gas industry because 15 years ago, Chevron wouldn't work with you if you were small, right? Because you were at risk. Now, Chevron and Shell and Equinor, they all have internal venture groups because they know what they need to compete in the future is not going to come from these mega companies. It's going to come from some two-man shop in you know, Miami, Florida or something. So they're all out there looking for this. I think it's just wonderful that we're finally getting there. Well, I think you know people hate the cycles in oil and gas, but the down cycle drives innovation, right? You have to do things differently. It's not about schedule anymore. It's about you know finding a new way to do things. And technology is really the long-term answer there, that innovation. So I think it's a fun industry. We think we play you know, an important role. We're not the industrial internet, but we're the foundational layer that, that, that brings that to bear. And you kind of mentioned, you know, we're appealing to oil and gas operators who could benefit from our network. We're also appealing to you know, digital technology providers, you know, these startups that you're talking about who can quickly scale across our 130,000 square miles of network plus our installed customer base. So it's those, those two audiences that you know, we, we hope to reach today. Yeah, well, we're definitely reaching them today. And I could talk to you all forever. Unfortunately, we're getting to the point where we need to wind down the show. This is the point where we do the product review. So if you have a tech product you want me to review, send it to me. You know the deal. I think it's great. I'll tell you it's great. And if I think it's not great, I'll say that as well. So this is a company called Varm. They sent me a pet fitness robot. It's basically a robot to entertain your dog while you're gone. And it doesn't have a camera in it. So it has a little bit of, they call it AI. It's really data analytics is going on from the two sensors it has. Quite frankly, this thing's not very good. My dog figured out how to put his foot on top of it and pull all the treats out of it without having to work for it. And so literally within an hour, my dog had this robot beat. So, you know, thanks for for sending the robot. I have to say, I, I can't recommend it. If y'all update it and make it a little bit more secure and also a little bit more interactive, let me know. I'd be happy to give it another review. It's $99 on Amazon if you want to give it a try. The link's in the show notes. And you've heard me talk about the street team. It's an all-volunteer group. You get to be a part of our press crew if we're going to a conference in your local area. You get in free to our live events. Get some cool swag. So go to Facebook, look for OGGN Street Team, and join. We ask for an hour's worth of work a week. But if you can't do it, we don't care. We know life gets in the way. And then if you'd like to win this really cool JBL Flip 4 Bluetooth speaker, which is really awesome, Nutanix has given these away. Just go to the show notes, click enter. We give away one a week. If you don't win one, you can enter the next week. And Nutanix enables IT teams to build and operate highly automatic private hybrid clouds. Plus, they understand oil and gas business. Just like Mark and Stan right here, I think it's really cool to sit down with some telecom guys, old school telecom guys that understand oil and gas. It's one of the big things that I had with a lot of the public companies is they understood telecom, but they didn't understand the oil and gas industry. And that understanding the industry is the critical part about helping your customers. So if somebody wanted to learn more about your company, where should they go? I was going to say you can email us at sales at inetlte.com. That's our email address. We'll put a link yeah. in the show notes, but your website's actually inetlte.com? No, inetlte.com. L-L-T-E.com. That's where you learn more about the company. If you want to contact us, then put sales in front of that. Send us an email. We're, we're happy to. Perfect. And then if people want to learn more about YouTube, I'm guessing LinkedIn's probably the best route? Yes. Yeah. So we'll put links to both Mark and Stan's LinkedIn profile. We'll actually put the sales contact email in the show notes as well as their website. They are doing some incredible stuff. And like I said, I didn't even know they existed, but they're solving a critical piece of the communications problem that just has to be taken care of. Guys, man, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Mark, thank you. We really appreciate it. We, Thanks, need, we need to visit this again. Like maybe give it six months and come back and do it again. Because what people don't understand is the telecom guys let their critical piece 
get away from them. You know, Apple, Netflix, none of those guys could exist without that connectivity part, yet the telecom guys let themselves become a commodity. It's really cool to see that y'all aren't doing that, that y'all are providing critical infrastructure to the oil and gas industry to keep them up and running. This is awesome. So, folks, we want to make sure you don't get left behind one episode at a time. And here are the events on deck. Hey, everybody. Alex here with the events on deck for the next month. We have some exciting things coming up. Two happy hours, one in Pittsburgh and one in Denver. So the first one will be happening on March 22nd at Bubba's Gourmet Burgers and Beer. This event will be from 4 to 7 and will feature a live recording of Oil & Gas This Week with Jake Corley and Mark LaCour. So be sure to check that out. You can sign up via our social medias. We have an Eventbrite sign up and should be good to go from there. The next event will be a happy hour in Denver at Liberty Oilfield Services on April 2nd. Once again, check our social medias for the Eventbrite sign up and sign up there. As some of our social media followers may know, we are headed to Aberdeen, Scotland the first week of March, in a couple days actually, for DokuruCon, creating high-impact sales and energy. Dokuru is excited to launch its very first sales development conference, and OGGN's Mark and Patrick will be hosting a panel and recording a live podcast, so we're really excited to be joining that. The Leaders in Industry Luncheon is on March 11th at the Petroleum Club of Houston, Port of the Future is happening on March 10th and 11th in Houston. Your registration to the Port of the Future conference also allows you access to exclusive events, including TSA Security and Terrorism, Research Showcase, and many more. So be sure to view the agenda and see what they are offering. The Houston Energy Breakfast will be on March 20th at the Norris Conference Center in Houston. The API Energy Houston three-gun chapter will be on March 20th. This event is filling up very quickly, so make sure to get a team in as soon as possible. The BP Energy Outlook 2020 edition will be on April 21st. It's happening online. And this event is about transitions that will take place to a low carbon energy system. That's all for this month, everybody. Hope you guys have a good month and check back in next month to see what events we're having. Thanks. Check us out next week for another entertaining and yet useful episode of Oil and Gas Tech Podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.